You may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. I was thinking how appropriate it is uh, that we had sung songs today so far from a German, a Welchman, we, an American. We will sing our last song from a couple of Scots that the gospel really is for every nation, tribe, and tongue. There are none without need of Jesus. And so there's a theme that we've missed in the book of Revelation that we are going to circle back to during these two weeks that we're taking an interlude from the intensity of the vision, as John often does, he gives us a, a little bit of a breather, and so we're going to take a little bit of a breather and circle back. So last week we looked at the role that prayer plays in unleashing the power of God's kingdom into the world, and today we're going to look at the end to which, one of the ends to which that power is unleashed to create a, a community, a new community of every nation, tribe, and tongue. So Revelation chapter 7, starting with verse 9. If you're new to Christianity, maybe aren't familiar with the Bible, we've printed the text for you on page 9. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take one home. Just grab one out of the pew and take it with you that you may have God's Word in your, in your hands and in your home. And it is our prayer that you would have it in your heart. This is God's word, Revelation chapter 7, starting with verse 9. After this, that's a key word in, in the book of Revelation to kind of see. This is it's one of John's ways of introducing us to something that's ultimate. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation... From all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Would you join with me again and ask God's blessing on His word preached? Let's pray. Lord, as we come to 
this great vision. Give us eyes to see, hearts to believe. Give us a greater vision that we could naturally see from the world around us or even with our own inclinations or insights. We need you to speak. And when you speak, you change. And so, Holy Spirit, may we see Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, one of the things that we've said repeatedly from the book of Revelation is that that part of the role this book plays is to give us a vision through which we can better envision life around us. In fact, the Greek word that we translate as revelation doesn't mean typically what happens at the end of time, but literally means an unveiling. God is unveiling in the book of Revelation what his plan in the world is and how that is being executed in the world. Much of the book of of Revelation is a vision of what God is up to. And therefore, it should form for us an ultimate lens through which we see reality. Now, we've, as I've said, skipped over an important part of that vision that we need to circle back around to. And that God is in the church putting together a multi-ethnic community through the finished work of Christ. That is what the gospel should be creating and is creating not even should be that's what God is creating through the gospel in the world in his church so John sees a vast multitude a great multitude that no one could number it's not a small clique of people but a vast multitude it's so large that it it can't be numbered but it's not only large it is from every nation tribe tongues and and peoples and language. It's a vastly diverse community. It's a vast community and a vastly diverse community. You see that language from every nation, tribe, and tongue is deeply biblical language. It goes, in fact, all the way as we see back to the very beginning of the story. And in the book of Revelation, that vision is so important that those words in some form or another and some variation occur seven times now if you've been with us as we've been studying the book of revelation that should cause your ears to peak your attention to be sparked because throughout the book of revelation seven is the number of completion of telos the end to which god is taking all things so that it is complete that's the number of god because he is complete in and of itself but it's the number of completion this is where God is taking his church so we have seven visions of salvation through judgment and seven times this vision is given to us that through the blood of Jesus Christ God is making a community of every nation tribe and tongue and that tells us this is the way things should be Now, any discussion of diversity lately honestly brings more heat than light. Because if we're going to talk about diversity in the American church, we have to talk about race. Now, in a minute, I'm going to suggest to us that's not the best category, that that ethnos, nation, tribe, and tongue, these are much better categories, much more biblical categories. 
but there is currently a lot more heat. You've experienced it, more heat than light when we began to talk about diversity in any context. About eight years ago, I set out on a journey to get some clarity on even my own understanding of diversity and race in America. The makeup of my family changed. I realized I'm going to have to think a little bit more about this. After eight years, I think the Lord has taught me a lot, but I've also realized I end up scratching my head on the complexity of the issues more than I have my hands around it. I think that's the, that's the, I, I'm, I guarantee I'm not the only one in the room who feels that. Let me read you a quote that I think a lot of us can resonate with. Now, this isn't just a heads up. This isn't coming from someone who's woke. So I want you to listen all the way through because if I don't clarify that, you're gonna, some of you are going to tune me out. I want you to hear this. I want you to listen all the way through to his conclusion. He says this, The subject of race has been my most serious study for 13 years. At one time, my notions about race differed little from the popular notions that surrounded me. However, a series of circumstances combined to confront me with the task of reevaluating my position. I had little to expect that a little investigation would suffice to give me the desired understanding. But the subject was broader than I expected it to be. And after years of study and contemplation... I would be the last to say that I have delivered the last word on race. That was written by C. Herbert Oliver, a black civil rights leader who was also a Reformed and Presbyterian pastor. And he wrote that in 1959. But he goes on. And I think, you know, we can, re we can resonate with his sentiments. He goes on. However, there is a higher teacher whose word, the Bible, has been my most basic source of inspiration and information. That word, which lives and abides forever, is the most sufficient guide in matters of faith and conduct. And the eternal truths of its pages are wonderfully applicable to a problem that confronts not only the nation but the entire world. So let me pull back a little. Too much heat, not enough light, so let's pull back. Because whenever we have a lot of heat, little light, we've got to pull back and restart with God's word. It is the only sufficient authority for faith and practice. And as Reverend Oliver says, it is sufficient to help us begin to navigate some complex issues. Now, to be honest with you, one of the things that has been greatly discouraging to me as a pastor and I think this is one of the reasons there's more heat than light. One of the things that's been greatly discouraged is I've noticed over the last few years that many of God's people are much more issue-oriented. And here's what I mean by that. The majority of my conversations have shifted from dealing with heart and life issues to being asked to comment on cultural and political issues. And I think it's mostly, it mostly comes to me in this form. And we want you to denounce something. My response is always. And usually we have to start with God's word. We can't let the culture dictate the agenda. Or the message. God will bring light. And when God brings light. 
He doesn't just tear things down. It is always with the intention of building his kingdom in its place. He doesn't just destroy, but rebuilds. And so we need a better vision than anything around us can give us. And here's what John is doing. He's saying to us an essential part of Jesus's mission. So essential, it can't be overlooked. So essential, it's going to come up seven times in the book. So essential that we can't push it off to the side and and decide if we're going to choose it or not choose it. This is essential to create a multitude of every nation, tribe, and tongue who together are clothed in Jesus's pure garments and together cry out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So now I've set the table. That's a long introduction. Now long introductions should indicate to you that this is going to be a long sermon. There's an old joke that says, you know what happened? You know what it means when a pastor looks at his watch? Absolutely nothing. So this is what I want to say. I want to circle back to us. Race isn't a good category to talk about diversity through. Because what John is presenting and what John is seeing is much, much bigger. One of the reasons that race isn't a good category because in our common language use of the word, it really just means skin color or hair texture or facial features, external Appearances And the Bible here is giving us something, a much better category and revelation. Every nation, tribe, and tongue. And what that does is it moves us out of external appearances to something that is a, a broader and even richer category to talk about ethnic and cultural differences. Right? The variety, in other words, the variety of ways in which we do life. It's a way of breaking down what is most common. People of different nations do life differently. People of different tribes do life differently. People in different socioeconomic classes do life differently. Different clans do life differently. This is what we're simply talking about is cultural and ethnic differences. People in the north do life differently than people in the south. We're going to get back to that amen in a second. (laughs) Now let's pull back and look at Acts chapter 17, if you've got your Bibles. Because this is going to help us develop a better framework. Acts chapter 17, Paul's in Athens and he's preaching the gospel to people who have never heard it before. He's in the marketplace, and here's where he starts. He starts with anthropology. This is what it means to be a human being. He's answering one of the most basic questions that any of us start anything with. What does it mean to be a human being? And he highlights the unity of humanity. There are unifying characteristics. There's a commonality to every single human being being we are created by God in his image to know God who created all things and gives life to all people Acts chapter 17 verse 24 the God who made the world and everything in it being the Lord of heaven and earth doesn't live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands there's the creator 
He's distinct. He doesn't need anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. There it is. That's what's most common about every single person in this room, every single nation, tribe, and culture around the world. We are made by God in his image for God. And every person has equal dignity because they are made in God's image. And as a result, every person's most basic need is to know God and to be known by him. But then, Paul doesn't just leave it there. He then transitions to diversity. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That's what it means to be human. Made in the image of God and vastly diverse. Because God only creates beautiful things and beauty always requires diversity and variety bananas are good but you don't want to eat a banana every single meal of every single day god could have given us nutrition by ingesting bland and colorless food but he doesn't because god only creates beauty and beauty requires diversity when we sit down and enjoy a well-made meal we enjoy it partly because of the variety of spices and colors in fact chefs often say you eat with your eyes first the way to make a beautiful plate that before you ingest and enjoy you see as beautiful is by diversity And so when God created mankind, humankind, he created them male and female, right? The diversity is part of the beauty. And that male and female are beautiful in their own kind. Masculinity is beautiful. Femininity is beautiful. And then there's another layer that amplifies their beauty, and it is in the way they complement each other. That's by design from the very beginning. There is simultaneously diversity, and unity. And that's a reflection of the God who created him, the God who is simultaneously one God in three persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. Neither are them the Holy Spirit, but together they are one God. God is unity and diversity. And so, if Adam had not sinned, Humanity populated the world. Adam had not thrown all of humanity under the curse of God. We still would have had a variety of cultures and ethnicities, a variety of nations, tribes, tongues, and people. This shows up when Pentecost comes. The nations of the world are gathered in Jerusalem. Pentecost comes. They don't quit speaking their tongues. Their diversity isn't eliminated, it's only enhanced by the gospel. And now with one tongue, they understand each other as they speak their different languages. And they're all united together for God under his reign and appreciative of the differences they brought to the table. One of my favorite theologians says this, written in the 19th century, The image of God is too rich for it to be fully realized in a single human being. However richly gifted that human being may be, it can only be something 
that's unfolded in its depth and its riches in a humanity counting billions of its members. And he's assuming diversity right there. Like they're not all going to be the same. Only humanity in its entirety as one complete organism summed up under a single head, spread out over the whole earth as a prophet proclaiming the truth of God, as a priest dedicating itself to God, as a ruler controlling the earth and the whole of creation. Only then is the fully finished image the most telling and striking likeness of God. Now, I want you to hold on to that. Unity and diversity, because it's going to be important, because we need another lens through which to see this. And it's this. Sin corrupts, but grace restores that was God's design, sin has corrupted it. So now let's transition to the book of Genesis. You don't need to turn there because we're going to fly through eight chapters. Because the language of nation, tribe, and tongue comes from Genesis chapter 10. And see, Genesis 3 through 11 is, is the history of the corruption of humanity. Remember Paul's point from Acts chapter 17, that from one man, God made every nation. That was by his design. But what layers over that is that when Adam fell, he corrupted all of humanity so that our hearts are now bent towards self and as a result, towards rivalries. Parents, you see this in your kids, don't you? How often does a day with the playgroup devolve into conflict? And the conflict is often rooted in this. Even in your own household. Even in your own marriage. You don't even have to go to your kids. It usually ends up here. I'm better than her. He's worse than me. Which is just another version of saying, I'm right, they're wrong. I mean, students, even in your schools, cliques develop around differences. Differences in musical preference, clothing, interest. That's normal. That's not even a bad thing. But rivalries develop between them. Even the first boys of Adam, the first children born into the world, fleshed out their lives differently. One was a shepherd, one was a farmer. Diversity from the very beginning, part of God's design. But their differences after the fall led to rivalry, oppression, and murder. So by the time we get to Genesis chapter 11... God's populated the world with a ton of people. And they have unity with purpose. But they've used their unity to build the kingdom to rebel against God. They built for themselves a temple in the land of Shinar so they could make a name for themselves. And that's important. Because you see what happens is that whenever we try to build an identity to our, for ourselves, it always leads to conflict. It always develops into rivalries or devolves into rivalries because whenever we develop an identity for ourselves, it will quickly devolve into you're awful, I'm not. It's just another way of saying my way is more righteous than your way. My people are more better than your people. And the only way to prove that is to take from your people and make my people better. Again, this is in all of our hearts. 
Every marital conflict evolves into this way, one way or another, not to appreciate the differences of my spouse, but to say, I'm going to put you on the side of out there. This was the basis for chattel slavery in America. This is the basis of African tribes who sold other African tribes into chattel slavery. It was the reason the majority Hutu killed upwards of three-quarters of a million minority Tutsis in Rwanda. The only thing different about those two tribes was the facial features. That's why China has killed almost a million minority Uyghurs. It is why redlining neighborhoods and instituting segregation was a thing. And it's in all of our hearts. My ways are better than your ways. My people are better than your people. Because if nation, tribes, and tongues become our identity markers, we will destroy people different than ourselves. We'll do it individually, and we'll do it in groups. Now Genesis 12. Because in Genesis 12, the story of redemption begins. God's going to create a new humanity through, this is going to be important, one man. So he calls Abram out of Ur and he promises, I'm going to be your God. I'll be with you. I'll be your defender. I'm going to build my kingdom through you. And then he says, and through you, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. Do you hear that? I'm going to rebuild my kingdom. Sin's not going to win. Sin corrupts. Grace restores. When God comes, it is always to build something new. Even when he comes in judgment, it's to destroy so that he might elevate his kingdom. And from the beginning of his plan of recreation in Genesis 12, he says from the beginning, there's going to be a great deal of diversity that ends up as a result. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And you see what this does. It doesn't eliminate diversity. Because it's part of God's beauty. Instead, what the gospel does is it redeems it. And the gospel redeems ethnic and cultural diversity, not just by saying, look, it's beautiful. It is. It is beautiful, but that's not what the gospel says more than that. It says it's beautiful, and that beauty can only be appreciated and reached when we are no longer tied to our ultimate identity in our ethnicity, race, tribe, preferences, socioeconomic status, anything else. And now we need to go to Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 14, if you've got your Bibles. Do you remember what God had said? The plan was through one man, he is going to create a new community that blesses all the nations, tribes, and tongues, and by inference looks multi-ethnic, very diverse. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. In the church in Ephesus, Paul's having to deal with a very complex problem. Now, you, you should, if you're a Christian, you've read your Bible, you should know that this vision is very difficult to accomplish. So difficult that it can only happen through the resurrection power of Jesus. 
And so Paul in the church of Ephesus, he's having to deal with these ethnic issues, Jews and Gentiles that are once separated from each other by the ceremonial laws of ancient Israel. But those laws that had been abolished in Christ, they had to learn now to live together in the church with their vast cultural differences. This shows up in Acts 6 for the first time. Like Pentecost had just happened. Great revival. The most people ever in the Bible to come to faith in Jesus at the day of Pentecost show up. By Acts chapter 6, the church in Jerusalem had grown large, which created ethnic conflict. And they have to solve it. It's happening in Ephesians chapter 2. And so here's what Paul says. Verse 14. For he himself, Jesus, he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So he's saying, look, all those things, they used to be boundary markers. They don't divide y'all anymore. But then... He one-ups them, and he sets the table for their unity and diversity in the church because he says this happened in the flesh of Jesus, in his body. And then he goes on so that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. Now, quite literally, the new man quite literally is one new humanity. Not just one new person, but a new humanity. And here's how that's accomplished. By being united to Jesus' body. To his humanity. And by being united by faith to Jesus and his humanity, he has created a new humanity. So making peace might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see what he's doing? He's not eliminating differences. Instead, he's elevating their sense of identity above their differences. He's not, he's not saying, look, what it means to become a Christian is get rid of all your ethnic, cultural differences but by giving them a more significant layer that overlays their differences in the gospel. And you see the vision, the vision of a multitude of every nation, tribe, and tongue is the desired outcome of Jesus putting on flesh and dying in his flesh on the cross and bearing in his flesh the punishment for our sins and therefore We are saved by being united to Jesus in his flesh. But in his flesh, he's also created a new humanity. You see, his his mission is not just to reconcile us to God, but by reconciling us to God and giving us his spirit and making us part of his household, reconciling us to each other. And this creates a community where diversity isn't the goal. The glory of Christ, the centrality of the gospel is the goal and where we realize that we need people who will help me see and experience Jesus differently than I normally would. 
because my nation, tribe, or tongue is going to have blind spots to God and his word, to the beauty of the gospel. There are going to be things that I just naturally am not going to see. We need the Asian church to help us appreciate the ways shame and family are a big part of the gospel narrative. We need the African church to help us appreciate the beauty of a world that is more mysterious than we think it is. We need the African American church to help us see the role that justice plays in a Christian worldview and to be more expressive in our worship. Can I get an amen? I always love my African American brothers when they they visit and they're like, you know, I just want to say amen. And I was like, please do. But I'll just just I'll just have to warn everybody else because that just makes me want to preach longer. <laughs> the gospel doesn't destroy nation, tribe, and tongue. It doesn't destroy differences. It just demotes them. These things, they don't function as identity markers anymore. They're like seasoning. They enhance, but they don't define. And that is Jesus now informs every nation, tribe, and tongue because he's the one king over all humanity. He's paid the one debt for our sins, given the one spirit, one church, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And now our nation, tribe, tongues, they're all used in service to Jesus instead of being used in service to you. That's the vision of heaven. So the revelation of John has again given us an alternative vision, a new way of seeing things, a way of seeing things that should create a new way of doing. That's John's gospel, or John's revelation. It's not just like, hey, I want to give you something. It's like, I want to give you something to help you live in the world. And this should create longings in us for a more diverse community in any church. That has to be part of our ambitions, our dreams, our longings, our prayers. This is part of what it means to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it needs to be part of our lament too, until it is more so. Because when our longings are unfulfilled, we need to lament to God. God, please, we need to grieve in prayer until he makes it so. Because we want to look to our left and to our right and see differences, to hear different voices, to hear different accents, see different ethnicities, different facial features, different stories, and then to see that together we have passed through the waters of God's judgment in Christ and that person next to me, so vastly different from me, is clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And that person next to me is a temple of the spirit and it makes it with that vision makes it a lot easier to demote my cultural preferences and allows all of us to use those different vantage points to season the church so that Jesus receives the glory that's the mission of Jesus after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. 
with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Would you pray with me? Lord, we want this. We want to experience this. We long for it. Make it, may this vision ache in our hearts until you make it so. The table that we are coming to is the table where the one family with all of our quirks and differences comes together and feeds on Jesus. And so we pray that as we come to this table, a table that is being enjoyed throughout this world, literally from every nation, tribe, and tongue, we want to experience even more of that in our own church body. So take these ordinary elements and use them to the extraordinary end of keeping Jesus in front of us and allowing us to demote our preferences. For he is our glory, and his glory is ours. And so we pray this in the name of the Savior. Amen.